Part three of Book four of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Nicole Lee, The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume five, by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book four, Part three. Carlsbad, first June, eighteen thirty-three. As a Frenchman, I found none but painful memories at Carlsbad. The town takes its name from Charles the Fourth, King of Bohemia, who came here to be cured of three wounds received at Crecy, while fighting beside his father John. Lobkowitz pretends that John was killed by a Scotchman, a circumstance not known to the historians. Sed cum galorum fines et annica tuetio, ava, Caledonia cuspide fossus, obit. Cannot the poet have written Caledonia for the sake of the quantity? In 1346, Edward was at war with Robert Bruce, and the Scotch were Philip's allies. The death of the blind John of Bohemia at Crecy is one of the most heroic and touching adventures of chivalry. John wanted to go to the assistance of his son Charles. He said to his companions, My lords, you are my friends. I call upon you to lead me so far forwards that I may strike a blow with my sword. They replied that gladly would they do so. The king of Bohemia went so far forwards that he struck a blow with his sword, indeed more than four, and combated most vigorously, and so did they of his company, and so much forward they pushed against the English, that all remained there, and were on the morrow found on the field around their lord, and all the horses tied together. Few people know that John of Bohemia was buried at Montagis, in the church of the Dominicans, and that on his tomb one used to read this remnant of an obliterated inscription, he died at the head of his attendants, together recommending them to God the Father. Pray to God for that sweet king. May this remembrance of a Frenchman expiate the ingratitude of France when, in the days of our new calamities, we appalled heaven by our sacrilege and cast out of his tomb a prince who died for us in the days of our old misfortunes. At Carlsbad, the chronicles relate that Charles IV, the son of King John, having gone out hunting one of his hounds, darting after a deer, fell from the top of a hill into a basin of boiling water. Its howls caused the huntsman to hurry in its direction, and the source of the sprudel was discovered. A hog which scalded itself in the waters of Teplitz showed them to the herdsman. Such are the traditions of Germania. I have been to Corinth. The ruins of the temple of the courtesans were dispersed over the ashes of Glycera. But the fountain of Pyrene, which sprang from the tears of a nymph, still flowed among the oleanders through which Pegasus flew in the times of the Muses. The waters of a port without ships bathed fallen columns, whose capitals lay steeped in the sea, like heads of drowned girls stretched upon the sands. The myrtle had grown in their hair and replaced the acanthus leaves. There you have the traditions of Greece. Carlsbad numbers eight springs. The most celebrated is the sprudel, discovered by the staghound. This spring issues from the ground between the church and the temple with a hollow sound and a white steam. It leaps up with irregular bounds to a height of six or seven feet. The hot springs of Iceland are superior to the sprudel, but none goes to seek health in the deserts of the Hecla, where life expires, where the summer's day, issuing from the day, knows neither sunset nor sunrise, where the winter's night, born again of the night, is without dawn or twilight. The water of the sprudel boils eggs and serves to wash plates and dishes. This fine phenomenon has entered the service of the Carlsbad housewives, an image of genius which degrades itself by lending its power to vile works. 
Carlsbad is the meeting-place in ordinary of sovereigns. They ought surely to get cured there of the crown for themselves and for us. A daily list is published of the visitors to the Sprudel. On the old rolls we find the names of the poets and the most enlightened men of letters of the North. Gorovsky, Dunker, Weisser, Herder, Goethe. I should have liked to meet with that of Schiller, my favourite. In the sheet of the day, among obscure arrivals, one observes the name of the Comtesse de Marne. It is only printed in small capitals. In 1830, at the very moment of the fall of the royal family at St. Cloud, the widow and daughters of Christophe were taking the waters at Carlsbad. The Haitian majesties have retired to Tuscany, near the Neapolitan majesties. King Christophe's youngest daughter, very well educated and exceedingly pretty, has died at Pisa. Her ebon beauty rests free under the porticos of the Campo Santo, far from the cane fields and mangrove trees beneath whose shade she was born a slave. In 1826, an Englishwoman from Calcutta was seen at Carlsbad, passing from the Banyan fig tree to the Bohemian olive tree, from the son of the Ganges to the son of the Tettle. She died away like a ray from the Indian sky lost in the cold and the darkness. The sight of cemeteries in places consecrated to health is a melancholy one. There young women sleep, strangers to one another. On their tombs are carved the number of their days and the place of their birth. One seems to be going through a hothouse in which flowers are cultivated of every climate, whose names are written on a label at the foot of the flowers. The native law has anticipated the requirements of exotic death. Foreseeing the decease of the travellers far from their country, it permits the exhumations beforehand. I might then have slept half a score of years in the cemetery of St. Andrew, and nothing would have hindered the testamentary dispositions of these memoirs. If Madame la Dauphine were to expire here, would the French laws permit the return of her ashes? That would be a controversial point between the Sorbonnizers of doctrine and the casuists of prescription. The Carlsbad waters are stated to be good for the liver and bad for the teeth. I know nothing about the liver, but there are many toothless people at Carlsbad. Perhaps the years are responsible for this rather than the waters. Time is an arrant liar and a great tooth-drawer. Does it not seem to you as though I were recommencing the chef d'oeuvre d'un inconnu? One word leads me to another. I go from Iceland to India. Voilà les Apennins, et voici le Caucase. And nevertheless, I have not yet left the Teplitz Valley. To obtain a view of the whole of the valley of the Tepel, I climbed a hill through a wood of pine trees. The perpendicular columns of these trees formed an acute angle with the slanting rays of the sun. Some had their tops, two-thirds, one-half, a quarter of their trunks, where the others had their feet. I shall always love the woods, the flora of Carlsbad, whose breath seemed to have embroidered the grass under my footsteps, seemed charming to me. I met again the fingered sedge, the common nightshade, the small loose drive, the perforated St. John's wort, the hardy lily of the valley, the white willow, sweet subjects of my early anthologies. See my youth coming to hang its reminiscences on the stalks of those plants which I recognised in passing. Do you remember my botanical studies among the Seminoles, my Kenotheras, my Nymphaeus, with which I deck my Floridans, the garlands of Clematis with which they entwine the tortoise, our sleep on the island by the lakeside, the shower of roses from the magnolia tree that fell upon our heads? I dare not calculate the age which my fickle painted girl would have reached by now. What should I gather on her brow to-day? the wrinkles that lie on my own. She is no doubt sleeping forever beneath the roots of a cypress grove of Alabama, and I, who bear in my memory those distant unknown recollections, 
I am alive. I am in Bohemia, not with Atala and Saluta, but near Madame la Dauphine, who is going to give me a letter for Madame la Duchesse de Berry. At one o'clock I was at Madame la Dauphine's orders. You wish to leave today, Monsieur de Chateaubriand, if Your Majesty will permit me. I shall try to find Madame de Berry in France, otherwise I should be obliged to make the journey to Sicily, and Her Royal Highness would be kept too long waiting for the answer which she expects. Here is a note for her. I took care not to mention your name, so as not to compromise you if anything happened. Read it. I took the note. It was written entirely in Madame la Dauphine's hand. I have taken an exact copy of it. Carlsbad, 31st May, 1833. It was a genuine pleasure for me, my dear sister, at last to hear from you direct. I pity you with all my soul. Reckon always on my constant concern for you, and especially for your dear children, who will be more precious to me than ever. My existence, as long as it endures, shall be consecrated to them. I have not yet been able to execute your commissions as regards our family, my health having required that I should come here to take the waters. But I shall discharge it immediately on my return to them. They and I, believe me, will never have any but the same sentiments on everything. Farewell, my dear sister, I pity you from the bottom of my heart, and embrace you fondly. M.T. I was struck by the reserve of this note. A few vague expressions of attachment but poorly covered the dryness of its substance. I respectfully said as much, and again pleaded the cause of the unfortunate prisoner. Madame answered that the king would give his decision. She promised me to interest herself on behalf of her sister. But there was no cordiality either in the voice or tone of the Dauphiness. One perceived rather a restrained irritation. The game seemed to me lost as far as my client's person was concerned. I fell back upon Henry V. I thought that I owed to the princess the sincerity which I had always employed at my risk and peril to enlighten the Bourbons. I spoke to her frankly and without flattery of the education of Monsieur le Duc de Bordeaux. I know that Madame has read in a kindly spirit the pamphlet, at the end of which I expressed a few ideas relating to the education of Henry V. I fear lest the child's surroundings should injure his cause. Messieurs de Damas, de Blacca and Latille are not popular. Madame agreed with this. She even quite threw over Monsieur de Damas while saying two or three words in honour of his courage, his probity, and his religion. In the month of September, Henry V will be of age. Does not Madame think that it would be a good thing to establish a council around him to which one would summon men upon whom France looks with less prejudice? Monsieur de Chateaubriand, by multiplying councillors, one multiplies opinions, and then whom would you propose to the king's choice? Monsieur de Villel? Madame, who was embroidering, stopped her needle, looked at me in surprise, and surprised me, in my turn, by giving a pretty judicious criticism of the mind and character of Monsieur de Villel. She regarded him only as an able administrator. Madame is too severe, said I to her. Monsieur de Villel is a man of method, of accounts, of moderation, of composure, of infinite resource. If he had not had the ambition to fill the first place, he would have been a man to keep everlastingly in the king's council. He will never be replaced. His presence with Henry V would have the best effect. I thought that you did not like Monsieur de Villel. I should despise myself if, after the fall of the throne, I continued to cherish the sentiment of some petty rivalry. Our royalist divisions have already done too much harm. I forswear them with all my heart, and am ready to beg pardon of those who have offended me. 
I entreat your majesty to believe that this is neither a display of false generosity, nor a stone laid by way of provision of a future fortune. What could I ask of Charles X in exile? If the restoration were to come about, should I not be at the bottom of my grave? Madame looked at me with kindness. She had the goodness to praise me in these simple words. That is very well said, Monsieur de Chateaubriand. She seemed to be still surprised to find a Chateaubriand so different from the one who had been described to her. There is another person, madame, I resumed, whom one might send for, my noble friend, Monsieur Lenné. There were three of us in France who ought never to take the oath to Philip, myself, Monsieur Lenné, Monsieur Royer Collard. Outside the government, and in different positions, we should have formed a triumvirate of some value. Monsieur Lenné took the oath from weakness, Monsieur Royer Collard from pride. The first will die of it, the second will live by it, because he lives by all that he does, being incapable of doing anything that is not admirable. Were you pleased with Monsieur le Duc de Bordeaux? I thought him charming. They say that your majesty spoils him a little. Oh, no, no. Were you satisfied with his health? He seemed to me to be wonderfully well. He looks delicate and a little pale. He often has a nice colour, but he is nervous. Monsieur le Dauphin is very much esteemed in the army, is he not? Very much esteemed? They remember him, do they not? This abrupt question, which had no connection with what we had just been saying, revealed to me a secret wound which the days of St. Cloud and Rambouillet had left in the heart of the Dauphiness. She brought up her husband's name in order to reassure herself. I hastened to anticipate the thought of the princess and wife. I declared, and with truth, that the army had never forgotten the impartiality, the virtues, the courage of its commander-in-chief. Seeing that the hour for walking had come, your majesty has no more orders to give me i am afraid of being troublesome tell your friends of the love i bear to france let them well understand that i am a frenchwoman i charge you particularly to say that you will do me a pleasure in saying it i regret france much i regret france very much ah madame what has that france not done to you how can you who have suffered so much continue to feel homesick no no monsieur de chateaubriand do not forget it be sure to tell them all that I am a Frenchwoman, that I am a Frenchwoman. Madame left me. I was obliged to stop on the staircase before going out. I would not have dared to show myself in the street. My tears still moistened my eyelids as I retraced this scene. On returning to my inn, I resumed my travelling dress. While the carriage was being got ready, Trogoff let his tongue run on. He told me again and again that Madame la Dauphine was very pleased with me that she made no attempt to conceal her satisfaction, that she spoke of it to anyone who was willing to listen to her. "'It's an immense thing, this journey of yours,' shouted Trogoff, trying to drown the voices of his two nightingales. "'You will see some results from it.' I did not believe in any result. I was right. They were expecting Monsieur le Duc de Bordeaux that same evening. Although everybody knew of his arrival, they had made a mystery of it to me. I was careful not to show that I was informed of the secret. At six o'clock in the evening, I was rolling towards Paris. Whatever may be the greatness of misfortune in Prague, the pettiness of the life of princes reduced to itself is difficult to swallow. To drink the last drop of it, one must have burnt one's palate and intoxicated oneself with a glowing faith. Alas, a new Symmachus, I bewail the abandonment of the altars. I raise my hands towards the Capitol. I invoke the majesty of Rome. But if the god should have turned into wood, and Rome failed to come to life again in its dust? End of Book 4, Part 3
Appendix. The Royal Ordinances of July 1830. Charles, etc. To all to whom these presents shall come, health. On the report of our Council of Ministers, we have ordained and do ordain as follows. Article 1. The liberty of the periodical press is suspended. 2. The regulations of Articles 1, 2 and 9 of the first section of the law of the 21st of October 1814 are again put in force, in consequence of which no journal or periodical or semi-periodical writing established or about to be established, without distinction of the matters therein treated, shall appear in Paris or in the departments, except by the virtue of an authority first obtained from us by the authors and printer respectively. This authority shall be renewed every three months. It may also be revoked. 3. The authority shall be provisionally granted and provisionally withdrawn by the prefects from journals and periodicals or semi-periodical works published or about to be published in the departments. 4. Journals and writings published in contravention of Article 2 shall be immediately seized. The presses and types used in the printing of them shall be placed in a public depository under seal or rendered unfit for use. 5. No writing of less than 20 printed pages shall appear except with the authority of our Minister, the Secretary of State for the Interior in Paris, and of the prefects in the departments. Every writing of more than 20 printed pages, which shall not constitute one single work, must also be published under authority only. Writings published without authority shall be immediately seized. The presses and types used in printing them shall be placed in a public depository under seal or rendered unfit for use. 6. Minutes relating to legal process and minutes of scientific and literary societies must be previously authorised, if they treat in whole or in part of political matters, in which case the measures prescribed by Article 5 shall be applicable. 7. Every regulation contrary to the present shall be without effect. 8. The execution of the present ordinance shall take place in conformity with Article 4 of the Ordinance of 27th November 1816 and of that which is prescribed by the Ordinance of 18th January 1817. 9. Our Secretaries of State are charged with the execution of this ordinance. Given at the Palace of St. Cloud, this 25th day of July in the year of Grace 1830 and the 6th of our reign. Signed, Charles. Countersigned, Prince de Polignac, President. Chantelot, Keeper of the Seals, Baron d'Ossay, Minister of Marine, Montbel, Minister of Finance, Comte de Guénon-Ronville, Minister of Ecclesiastical Affairs, Baron Capel, Secretary of State for Public Works, Charles, to all to whom these presents shall come, etc. Having considered Article 50 of the Constitutional Charter, being informed of the manoeuvres which have been practised in various parts of our kingdom, to deceive and mislead the electors during the late operations of the electoral colleges. Having heard our counsel, we have ordained and do ordain as follows. Article 1. The Chamber of Deputies of Departments is dissolved. 2. Our Minister, the Secretary of State of the Interior, is charged with the execution of the present ordinance. Given at St. Cloud this 25th day of July in the year of Grace 1830 and the 6th of our reign. Signed, Charles. Countersign, Comte de Peronet, Peer of France, Secretary of State for the Interior. Charles. To all who shall see these presents, health. Having resolved to prevent the return of the manoeuvres which have exercised a pernicious influence on the late operations of the electoral colleges, and wishing, in consequence, to reform, according to the principles of the Constitutional Charter, the rules of election, of which experience has shown the inconvenience, 
we have recognized the necessity of using the right which belongs to us to provide by acts emanating from ourselves for the safety of the state and for the suppression of every enterprise injurious to the dignity of our crown for these reasons having heard our counsel we have ordained and do ordain article one conformably with articles fifteen thirty six and thirty of the constitutional charter the chamber of deputies shall consist only of deputies of departments two the electoral rate and the rate of eligibility shall consist exclusively of the sums for which the elector and the candidate shall be inscribed individually as holders of real or personal property in the roll of the land tax or of personal taxes three each department shall have the number of deputies allotted to it by article thirty six of the constitutional charter four the deputies shall be elected and the chamber renewed in the form and for the time fixed by article thirty six of the constitutional charter five the electoral colleges shall be divided into colleges of arrondissement and colleges of departments except the case of those electoral colleges of departments to which only one deputy is allotted six the electoral colleges of arrondissements shall consist of all the electors whose political domicile is established in the arrondissement the electoral colleges of departments shall consist of a fourth part of the most highly taxed of the electors of departments seven the present limits of the electoral colleges of arrondissement are retained eight every electoral college of arrondissement shall elect a number of candidates equal to the number of departmental deputies nine the college of arrondissement shall be divided into as many sections as candidates each division shall be in proportion to the number of sections and to the total number of electors having regard as much as possible to the convenience of place and neighbourhood ten the sections of the electoral college of arrondissement may assemble in different places eleven each section of the electoral college of arrondissement shall choose a candidate and proceed separately twelve the presence of the sections of the electoral college of arrondissement shall be nominated by the prefects from among the electors of the arrondissement thirteen the college of departments shall choose the deputies half the deputies of departments shall be chosen from the general list of candidates proposed by the colleges of arrondissement nevertheless if the number of deputies of the department is uneven the division shall be made without impeachment of the right reserved by the college of department fourteen in cases whereby the effect of omissions or void or double nominations the list of candidates proposed by the college of arrondissement shall be incomplete if the list is reduced below half the number required the college of the department shall choose another deputy not in the list if the list is reduced below a fourth the college of the department may elect the whole of the deputies of the department fifteen the prefects the sub-prefects and the general officers commanding military divisions and departments are not to be elected in the departments where they exercise their functions sixteen the list of electors shall be settled by the prefect in the council of prefecture it shall be posted up five days before the assembling of the colleges seventeen claims regarding the power of voting which have not been authorized by the prefects shall be decided by the chamber of deputies at the same time that it shall decide upon the validity of the operations of the colleges eighteen in the electoral colleges of departments the two oldest electors and the two electors who pay the most taxes shall execute the duty of scrutators the same disposition shall be observed in the sections of the college of arrondissement composed at most of only fifty electors in the other sections the functions of scrutators shall be executed by the oldest and the richest of the electors 
the secretary of the college of section shall be nominated by the president and the scrutators nineteen no person shall be admitted into the college or section of college if he is not inscribed in the list of electors who compose it this list will be delivered to the president and will remain posted up in the place of the sitting of the college during the period of its proceedings twenty all discussion and deliberation whatever are forbidden in the bosom of the electoral colleges twenty one the police of the college belongs to the president no armed force without his order can be placed near the hall of its sittings the military commandant shall be bound to obey his requisitions twenty two the nomination shall be made in the colleges and sections of colleges by the absolute majority of the votes given nevertheless if the nominations are not finished after two rounds of scrutiny the bureau shall determine the list of persons who shall have obtained the greatest number of suffrages at the second round it shall contain a number of names double that of the nominations which remain to be made at the third round no suffrages can be given except to the persons inscribed on that list and the nomination shall be made by a relative majority twenty three the electors shall vote by bulletins every bulletin shall contain as many names as there are nominations to be made twenty four the electors shall write their vote on the bureau or cause it to be written by one of the scrutators twenty five the name qualification and domicile of each elector who shall deposit his bulletin shall be inscribed by the secretary on a list destined to establish the number of the voters twenty six every scrutiny shall remain open for six hours and the result shall be declared during the sitting twenty seven there shall be drawn up a process verbal for each sitting this process verbal or minute shall be signed by all the members of the bureau twenty eight conformably with article forty six of the constitutional charter no amendment can be made upon any law in the chamber unless it has been proposed and consented to by us and unless it has been discussed in the bureau twenty nine all regulations contrary to the present ordinance shall remain without effect thirty our ministers the secretaries of state are charged with the execution of the present ordinance given at st cloud this twenty-fifth day of july in the year of grace eighteen thirty and the sixth of our reign signed charles countersigned by all the ministers end of appendix end of volume five